The following program is pre-recorded. Morning, Gloria, America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Rarely have I been excited for a Hillsdale Dialogue as I have been for last week, this week, and probably next week. We're talking with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, and his colleague and student and friend, Glenn Elmers, who has written this brand new book, which I'm holding up, The Soul of Politics, which I just found to be a wonder and a delight, and I would encourage all of you to get, because it actually lays out what's been happening for 2,500 years, where we are. Now, we don't know where it's going, but we know where we've been. And Glenn has done a great labor in teaching us about Harry Jaffa, of also teaching us about how Jaffa came to be. And we pick up where I left off last week, gentlemen, on page 12 of The Soul of Politics, when uh, Glenn Elmers writes, within less than a generation after the Union victory of the Confederacy, American political scientists, many of whom had studied in Germany or read books by German philosophers of history, had begun a project for building, quote, the modern administrative state. Larry Arn, why was that such a bad turn for America? And we can talk about how it manifests itself. I had Dr. Fauci on last week. I asked him to quit because he and Dr. Collins had become expressions of the vast administrative state. And neither of them understood what I was talking about. Once you get absorbed by the vast administrative state, you don't know you're part of it. How did it happen from, from the Union in less than a generation? What happened? Well, if you turn your attention, that thing from Frank, Frank Goodnow that I quoted last week is the great example to me. Uh, if you think uh, that raising a child is something like growing a plant, and that they become what their nature says, and you help them. Or they become less than their nature says, but those are the two alternatives. That's one way to look at education, and that is an expression of human nature. If you think, on the other hand, that outside forces are moving us all the time, not the internal soul, not the internal principle of motion in a being, but external things, matter, change, everything. They're decisive. So then what do you do following on that? And the answer is you turn your attention to these external things and you try to control all of them. It's like you're at war with your environment. Uh, The environmental movement in its radical form is just another attempt to conquer nature. Well, you know what that costs, right? Because the next installment on that is being debated in the Congress right now, and, the, and that particular installment costs $3.5 trillion, which is then to spend in a single year, as we've done twice this year already, uh, you know, a third of the wealth that the United States of America produces in a year. Yep. And the government's already half the economy, and it's already telling me in detail how to run a liberal arts college, which I actually happen to do for a living. And if we took their money, I would have to listen to all of their advice. But they're always inventing new ways to make you listen to their advice. So it's not really advice, way. is it, Dr. Arn? Not really advice. It's really no. rules. That's it. It's, and, and the rules, by the way, they're characteristic. Uh, there's an author named Max Weber who's really explicit about this. Uh, he thinks that the rules 
and the files. There's actually a chapter in one of his books called The Files. <laughs> you know, they're like, they are reality. We define reality through these rules. And that means we can change people's everything. We can change how they reproduce. We can change what they do for a living. We can change anything. And, and that's because we are defining reality through the actions of the administrative state. And the fact that they're incomprehensible is kind of an advantage. Oh, it's very much an advantage. When you try and argue with Dr. Fauci and Dr. Collins, as I did last week, that the FDA ought not to have been uh, in, including concerns about global equity in their scientific discussion of whether or not boosters work, it's they're not they're not arguing. They're nonplussed that anyone would think that it's wrong for an administrative body appointed by bureaucrats to make decisions about the international policy of the United States. Glenn Elmer's into this mess of Woodrow Wilson and all the progressives that were birthed out of the rejection of Lincoln and Jefferson and the ancients and the modern and the resolution. There comes a German refugee by the name of Leo Strauss. He comes to New York, and he begins to teach at the New College. Who is he, and why does he matter? Right. So Leo Strauss, as you say, a refugee from Nazi Germany, comes to the United States, and in a way, uh, almost single-handedly, rediscovers the possibility of political philosophy. So all these bad modern thinkers that Larry was just talking about, Goodnow and Wilson and Crowley and all these other guys who, who adapted German historicist thought, took the view that, that human life is determined. It's determined by laws of history or economics or other things. And fundamentally, that means the denial of free will, the denial of human choice, the denial of free thought. If we're just slaves to historical processes, we're not really free. And the rediscovery of political philosophy, especially classical political philosophy that Leo Strauss undertook, was the rediscovery of permanent truths and human freedom. Uh, and that was, it's hard to appreciate today what a tremendous uh, achievement that was, uh, because the absolutely dominant academic opinion then, and to some degree even now, was this rejection that there are permanent truths, and even a rejection of the idea of moral freedom. And, and Strauss, and then Joffa, particularly in the American context, uh, revived this older understanding against the modern deterministic view. Now, Leo Strauss begins to teach, and he teaches for a long time at the New College in New York before moving to the University of Chicago. Who were his most important students at both places? Obviously, Harry Jaffa is one, but who are the others, uh, Glenn Elmers? So Jaffa actually brought in his old childhood friend, uh, Joseph Cropsey, who was going to pursue a career in economics, and Jaffa brought him over to political philosophy. And then Cropsey ended up at Chicago and, and became a colleague of Leo Strauss, and the two of them uh, co-edited this, this wonderful book that graduate students call the Purple Bible. It's called The History of Political Philosophy, and it's a collection of essays on all the major thinkers of Western philosophical thought. Um, you know, there's a tremendous number of, of Straussians now, and they've sort of divided among themselves. But, uh, you know, Mansfield uh, came along a little later, but um, another friend of theirs, by the way, who also went on to teach political philosophy was Frank Canavan, um, Joffin and Cropsey were both Jews, and Canavan was a Catholic. Uh, Isn't Alan Bloom among their number as well? Alan Bloom, who right, this, this, who wrote this famous book, Closing the American Mind. And, and Joffin and Bloom were friends for a long time and, and wrote a very important book uh, called Shakespeare's Politics, which is, in a way, the first 
the first serious book treating Shakespeare as a philosophic thinker. So, yeah, Bloom was an important figure. Uh, and there's so so here's a hard question. I'm going to come back to Shakespeare. You're, you're anticipating my outline. If there was the equivalent of the the fire at the Alexandria Library that Caesar started uh, in 38 B.C. or the general decline of the library, and, and Strauss could only have saved the writings of one of his students, which student would he have saved, Larry Art? Uh, well, of course, I'm a partisan in that question. But you're asking me a, a question about the opinions of Strauss. Yeah. And they are... You know, not the easiest thing in the world to discern, especially about something like that. But, of course, it would be Harry Jaffin. <laughs> <laughs> Glenn Elmers, do you agree? Of course. There's no okay. question. I just, I just want people to understand that Leo Strauss matters a great deal because he reinvents political theory. But of the people who carry forward the mission, there are many great individuals who carry forward the mission but probably the greatest is Harry Jaffa, and probably because of one book. And what is that book, Glenn? Well, uh, the key book uh, that really launched his career was Crisis of the House Divided, which is an examination of the Lincoln-Douglas debates, uh, which applied this discovery of the idea of permanent moral truth uh, to America. Uh, Strauss, I mean, uh, Jaffa was amazed, after having studied political philosophy with Strauss, to see in the Lincoln-Douglas debates the same arguments about justice that he had read about in a book by Plato called The Republic, about whether there's a natural permanent standard for justice outside of our will or whether justice is just whatever the majority or, or the strongest part of society decides. And, and Joppa then launches a lifelong uh, interest in, in Lincoln and, and America with this book that came out in 1959. Anybody who listens to the Hillsdale Dialogues, and they're all collected at HughForHillsdale.com, or you can go to Hillsdale.edu, will now hopefully have a light bulb go on, as in the Looney Tune cartoon, where they say, oh, that's why they spent 10 weeks on Lincoln. Oh, and that's why they're moving to the soul of politics now, because Lincoln's got something to do with Jaffa, and Jaffa's got something to do with Strauss, and Strauss has got something to do with Machiavelli and with Aristotle and Socrates. It's actually all a ladder, people. And there's a reason you go to Hillsdale College and it takes four years. It's a big ladder. We'll keep talking about it when we come back with Dr. Larry Arn and Glenn Elmers. This is the Hillsdale Dialogue. Somewhere in the world, news is happening. You'll hear it here first, but only if you're here when Hugh Hewitt continues. The Hilldale Dialogue is underway. Part two of what I think may be a three-part series on the reconstruction of political philosophy in America after its decline and destruction by the progressive movement for a period of years. I'm joined by Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, where you can go and get a great education in things that matter. Glenn Elmers, who has written this magnificent new book, The Soul of Politics. It purports to be a biography of Harry Jaffa, but it's actually a lot more than that, though it is certainly that. Before I move on, you mentioned Glenn Elmers in the last segment, and it was the next question. How does Shakespeare get mixed up in this? Because here we are, we're talking about Socrates and Aristotle and Aquinas and Augustine, and we're talking about Machiavelli and Hegel. And here into the middle of the soul of politics comes a big chapter on Shakespeare, a poet. Why? 
couple of reasons. So um, Shakespeare was uh, a much deeper thinker than people had appreciated uh, before sort of the middle of the last century when, when Strauss, many of Strauss's students, especially Jaffa and Alan Bloom, started to, to read Shakespeare closely and see a really deep, profound understanding of politics. Jaffa uh, was very interested in, in the tragedies and the comedies, but also especially the English history plays, which revealed in a very compelling, uh, striking way, the problem of feudalism and the problem of divine right of kings. And Shakespeare very clearly showed, and I think Jaffa has a wonderful way of putting this, that the doctrine of divine right of kings, the problem of feudalism, could not combine legitimacy and competence. And this is why English history plays are just a succession of civil war and conflict. And it was not until the American founders developed the idea of separation of church and state, of constitutionalism, of Republican government, that you solve this problem that Shakespeare reveals so uh, magnificently in his play. And, and, and Dr. Arn, did you ever take Shakespeare from Jaffa? You told me he was rather discursive in his teaching, and that he might take a long time to get to a point. Did you ever do Shakespeare with him? Oh, yeah, three times. And uh, he was always great. His, his classes were always great. They were almost always episodically great. Uh, his classes on Shakespeare were just always great. And the reason is the way he did it. He uh, loved to listen to great recordings of Shakespeare plays. And we'd play them in class on the turntable, because that's what you had back then. And you'd have the text in front of you. And he would pick up the needle and talk about it. And it was just, you know, awesome. And you... And it was dramatic because Shakespeare is very dramatic. Now I have to I have to interrupt us for a minute because I want to embellish a point that uh, Elmer's, the Glenn Elmer's, uh, Glenn made about uh, Strauss. You have to see that these thoughts, this this academic work, is playing out against the great drama of civilization and the peril it's in. If you think it's in peril. And that's emphasized so powerfully in the fact that Leo Strauss was a Jew in Germany and studied with Martin Heidegger, and he regarded Martin Heidegger as the greatest mind of the time. Martin Heidegger was a Nazi, and he that means he joined a movement and never apologized for it. Heidegger did, not, not Strauss. Heidegger did, yeah. Heidegger did, and that meant that one of Strauss's teachers joined a movement that sought the life of every Jew in the world. And that, that is, so there's a crisis in thought because it comes to these logical, uh, you know, crossroads. And, and, but it's a practical crisis, too. And that gave energy to Strauss. You know, in exile, he went first to England and then to New York. That gave energy to his thinking. And that's one one cause of its greatness, in my opinion. Uh, okay, now go back to Shakespeare. Well, um, well wait, we've got to go to a break. And yeah. when we come back, I also okay. want to talk about the fact that Jaffa learns from Strauss during the war. Harry Jaffa's turned down three times for military service because he's, like me, blind as a bat. But... He takes nine courses from Leo Strauss during the war. I find that just fascinating. Then he begins his Ph.D. So it's all in New York. Then they move to Chicago. But it's all during this war. 
that has begun in Germany that Leo Strauss had to flee from because his buddy Heidegger got into the heads of all the Nazis and they became the Nazis. But the people seeking truth fled to America and because America's America, they were able to establish the project. More when we return on Shakespeare and the latter when we get back to the Hillsdale Dialogue. Stay tuned. back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. This is part two of a Hillsdale Dialogue that might run a couple more parts. I'm talking with Dr. Larry Arn. We began last week and his colleague, Glenn Elmers. Glenn has written this brand new book, The Soul of Politics, which is a map. It's a guide for anyone who wants to figure out where we have been and where we might be going. When we broke off, we were talking about how Shakespeare would invade the classroom of Harry Jaffa, who is otherwise concerned with dialogues and dialectics and with uh, Greeks and Germans. Why does Shakespeare end up there, Larry? What were you about to say? Well, uh, you know, Professor Jaffa loved to say that in the end of one of the Platonic dialogues, uh, the symposium, Socrates says that the greatest poet will be the one who can write both tragedy and comedy. And Shakespeare wrote both and invented the third thing, the history plays that Glenn praised earlier. And, and Professor Jaffa thought that he was philosophic, and that he applied that, he, what he did, is that there's an argument in Aristotle's, uh, in Aristotle, and the rhetoric in other places, that uh, history is a very powerful teacher of the past. It's the only thing we can know, really, because the, the present is fleeting and the future is obscure. But poetry can be more powerful in teaching it when it's contrived by the best. And so what the Shakespeare's history plays do is they set these ideas and people and their interplay into motion. And you can see where they lead. And so it's just a, it, it is very like a platonic dialogue, except it's a drama. And it's, uh, it, so it's tremendous, right? And Jaffa, uh, you know, first class I ever had, first five minutes I was ever in. It was a class on the Nicobacchian ethics, which was, you know, very good, the best. Uh, he begins by saying, when people get old like me, they, they make a list of the 100 greatest books. I, by the way, am now older than Jaffa was then. <laughs> and and, uh, and he, he, he says, life is too short to read 100 books, if they're great books. You just won't have time. So I have a list of the three greatest books. And he speaks somewhat mysteriously about it, but the, the three greatest books, that if you analyze what he said, because he was, you know, not, what was it? He was rich and deep and takes, anyway, uh, Plato's Republic, Shakespeare, and Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. Those he thinks are the three greatest books. So by the way, you can't go wrong if you learn about those three things. Uh, well, you know, Lincoln said he was learned on Shakespeare and the Scripture, and that was it. I don't quite believe him, but he also read in the law, so I think we've got to put the law in there. Before I go further into Dr. Jaffa, uh, Glenn Elmers, what is the Claremont Institute? The Claremont Institute is a think tank out in California that was founded in 1979 by some of Jaffa's students, uh, Larry 
uh, was among that early cadre of people, along with Chris Flannery and Peter Schramm and Tom Silver and some others. And because Jaffa was very focused on applying the lessons, the wisdom of political philosophy to the crisis of the West, the crisis uh, that was emerging already then in America, his students developed created this think tank in order to apply these lessons, to sort of apply theoretical wisdom to practical politics. Now, I I want to play something. I want to play a a bit of a speech. It's cut number 32, Ben, if you can pull it up for me. Everyone will recognize it when they hear it. Cut 32. I would remind you that extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. Dr. Arn, why are those words relevant to the Claremont Institute and Harry Jaffa? Well, of course, those words were spoken in 1964, a long time before there was a Claremont Institute, and a uh, long time before Glenn Elmers was born, probably. <laughs> but uh, but uh, uh, Harry Jaffa wrote those words. Uh, he wrote that acceptance speech of Barry Goldwater. It's an interesting fact that a student of Professor Jaffa, he was actually a history major, if memory serves, a guy named David Tucker, who's a fine man. He's lately attacked uh, uh, the Claremont Institute. No, hold on, I'm getting confused. Who just attacked Harry yep. Jaffa, Glenn, about extremism yep. and defense of liberty? Well, I mean, Peter Berkowitz reviewed my book. And- oh, there you go. That's it. That's who did it. Yeah. Sorry. I've got my memories confused. There's all these schisms, right? And uh, <laughs> and and, and they, you know they'll they'll go on uh, as long as civilization goes on, which means not much longer. Uh, <laughs> and and the point is that thing he just misunderstands what that is. Uh, he understands Aristotle's account of the mean, <laughs> which he's given in 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 regard to. Justice, among other things, and and uh, so what is what is extremism? Uh, it means going all the way, and so there are examples in history of that. Like the most reluctant and eloquent man uh, about the dangers of war was Winston Churchill, and he spent his life in fear of it. I mean, he was really good at it. He didn't personally fear it. But he saw that it could be the destruction of everything. And he spent years, he foresaw the great world wars, and he spent years trying to prevent them. But they came. And then he was fated to lead among them. And so the cost of war destroys everything, and you can't have that unless the alternative is to live as a Nazi. And so he wrote a speech. 
he, he, we don't have the speech, but he wrote in his Second World War that he had prepared a speech called, You Can Take One With You. <laughs> and that was a speech that would have been heard by my wife's parents, right? And that means, what's more extreme than that? Uh, in other words, you there are circumstances, and the circumstances are rare, by the way, because politics needs to be conducted moderately. That's what's one of the things that's wrong today, is that everything is extreme. But on the other hand, to resist that ultimate, deadly, fatal extremism, you go all the way. I believe you've told the story of Churchill addressing his cabinet, and they're, what do you say, we will choke on our own blood, if necessary? Yeah. If this island story is to end at last, and see, he says that at a moment where the cabinet is divided because it looks hopeless. Britain is alone now against both Germany and the Soviet Union. And they're just a puny little country, in, in, you know, from the point of view of armies. And, they, and so Mussolini, that deceitful little slime, he, uh, he approaches Edward Halifax, the foreign secretary, with a peace offer. Let's have a conference. Talk about peace. We'll be generous. And, well, first of all, that's a terrible prudential situation, right? Because the, the arguments of Halifax and for a time Chamberlain, who, in my opinion, to his honor, uh, changed his mind about this, their argument was, well, we can go on. They'll leave us intact. Uh, we can wait this out. And, you know, that's a, as I say, that's a difficult judgment, right? That's not easy. And Churchill had foreseen and predicted that a great world war would compromise the greatness of Britain. Well, he's the one who made the argument carry on. And he did it very beautifully in a cabinet meeting on May the 28th, 1940. And it ends, if this island story is to end at last, uh, let it end only when each of us lies choking in his own blood upon the ground. Now, see, that you have to understand about, about the, the ways of practical judgment that there's no certain calculation that that was the right thing to do. And sure enough, you know, Britain had already lost much of its greatness, by the way, and it had lost much of it in its own heart. But still, they, they spent everything they have. And the Macmillan Company is an American company now because they mortgaged every foreign asset, much of it to us, by the way, to get the, the means to fight that war, and they punched way above their weight. Well, the point is, Jaffa thinks that those calculations are the epitome of politics, <laughs> and that, like, uh, just like Winston Churchill, Jaffa thought they should be avoided. But when they're presented and you can't avoid them, then you have to make those choices. And, and you have and to prepare idea. to make those. You have to study to prepare yeah. to make those choices if they are ever presented to you, which is what they do at Hillsdale, by the way, and what they study at the Claremont Institute and what comes out in the Claremont Review of Books is the study of those choices before they have to be made in the case that they ever need be made, that they be made by prudent statespeople who are men and women committed 
to the ideas that we're talking about and we'll continue to talk about after the break. Don't go anywhere, America. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. The Hillsdale Dialogue continues in all things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. This is the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. In week two of this conversation with Glenn Elmers and Larry Arn, I've gotten to the third page of my outline of six pages, so obviously I, I overshot the mark. Uh, I want to make sure I ask Glenn Elmers, before we leave them hanging, what is natural right and how is it different from natural law? Um, they're very close. Natural right was the term that was used by the classical Greek thinkers, Plato, especially Aristotle, and it's the idea that nature, which is something we don't create, right? We, we are products of nature. We live in the natural world. We don't, nature is not something for us to manipulate, to, to make it conform to our will, which is the modern sort of scientific view. Um, and so nature provides a standard for us to understand. If we know our own nature, we can know what's good for us, what allows human beings to, to flourish. And so to, to understand nature and human nature is to understand what's right, uh, to have some understanding of the good. Natural law uh, comes partly out of Christian thought and more modern thought, and it's the idea that um, from this understanding of what's right by nature, we can establish uh, certain rules. Uh, again, they're, very, they're pretty close to each other. Uh, natural law is a, more of a, a modern idea, and, and, and natural right is more of a classical Greek idea. And so, Dr. Oren, at the, at the start, when you sit down with a Harry Jaffa and you're his student, and Glenn with his student as well, does he ever reveal all of this outline to you, or does he make you read your way to figure it out? Well, uh, I was going to say about something he said earlier. Great teachers, including Harry Jaffa, they carry instruction how you must live your life, right? Because I have said to a couple of statesmen that I, lately that I thought did something fell below the level of events, to use a Churchill phrase. Uh, one of them said to me, how could I be expected to know that? And I said, well, it's a question of how you live your life. Because you have to spend your time knowing the things you need to know. And if you are lucky and you get the right kind of help to get started, you'll find that that's the most joyful way to live your life, too. So, yeah, the, the point is, Professor Jaffa, every great te teacher does this, calls his students to a better life. And that means using all their capacities to the fullest to become the best thing they can be. And that's, you know, that's, I, I'm explicitly in that line of work myself now, and it's very fun and really great, right? But also, there's a discipline about it. Uh, we advertise Hillsdale College. Its chief feature that I always mention is Hillsdale College is very difficult. You know, you're going to have to figure out how you're going to live your life. And there's no reason to come to this college, I say all the time, unless you intend to use what you practice, what you learn here, for the rest of your life, whatever you do for a living. And, you know, I'll say something about Glenn. Glenn has done that splendidly, by the way, although he's not been working in the academic world. And, you know, here's this boy that I know, and he's grown up and he knows a bunch of stuff. Well, that's because of the way he's lived his life. And that's... And that's all you've got, by the way. You've got your life. So and, use it. And so use it. And that's why we have The Soul of Politics, which is the book we are talking about. And when we come back next week, and we do, I've probably got two more hours worth here, we're going to look at 
at Professor Jaffa and Professor Strauss. I don't want to close this without, however, saying that Ohio State has a critical role in this. And uh, I've got to make sure that the audience knows that, Glenn, that no Ohio State, no Harry Jaffa, right? That's correct. It was That's- Jaffa's first tenured position. He came out to Ohio State when he left New York. He, he, along with another colleague who was hired at the same time, were the first Jews in the political science department there. And they were hired by Harvey Mansfield's father, Harvey so Mansfield I, Sr. I think it's fair to say that the West depended upon Ohio State and continues to depend upon Ohio State. Dr. Arn, do you agree with me about that? I do, but you have to add one qualification. <laughs> the West depended on Ohio State unbeknownst to itself. <laughs> But it it's just I, I found that and I marked it out and I said, well, Glenn Elmers has given me all the I didn't know that Harry Jaffa went to Ohio State and that he became friends with Woody Hayes, Glenn Elmers. Yes, he did. The great famous football coach. He, he and Woody Hayes knew each other. Yep, that's right. Well, I want to close by telling a quick story. When I was working for President Nixon in exile in 1978, when I first met Dr. Arne, uh, very few people would come to visit uh, President Nixon, because he was in disgrace and in retirement at the Elba of America. And one day I look up from my office, which was old General Haig's office, and it wasn't in the main building. It was across from the main building. And who did I see walking in to see Richard Nixon but Woody Hayes? And Woody didn't care what anyone thought. He came out to talk military history with Richard Nixon about Vietnam. So I hope they were friends. Did, did Dr. Jaffa ever tell you anything about Woody Hayes, Larry Arn? Oh, yeah, he loved him. And, and uh, you know, Woody Hayes was, uh, see, if you read Plutarch's Lives, you learn to do things like this if you study with really great teachers. You find out that these greatest men in history all had these huge problems in their character, some problems. And Woody Hayes was fierce, sometimes excessive. Yes, <laughs> Clemson. <laughs> and it cost him his job, but not his legacy. We'll continue to talk about Harry Jaffa and Leo Strauss next week. What a remarkable life. What a remarkable book. In the meantime, the soul of politics. Go and get it. Dr. Larry Arn, Glenn Elmers, thank you. All things Hillsdale, including an application. If you think you want to study the best things, go to hillsdale.edu and apply. Do it today because it's going to fill up early. I'll be back next week on the next Hugh Show. You absolutely, positively need the truth. This is where you turn. This is The Hugh Hewitt Show.